0: You're listening to a DM podcast. G'day, guys. Welcome to episode 214 of the Talking with TK podcast. My special guest tonight is David Mead. David is a current member of the Brisbane Broncos. His career started at the Gold Coast Titans in 2009, and he's played 171 NRL first grade games for 75 tries. He played three seasons at the Catlins in the Super League. He won the Challenge Cup in 2018. On the representative scene, he represented New South Wales country in two games. He's also, his country of birth, PNG, represented in 14 tests, which includes three World Cups. He also had the honour of captaining PNG at the 2017 World Cup. Away from footy, he hosts the David Mead podcast and has had some incredible guests and includes the likes of Marcus Bybe, Justin Olam, Alex Johnston, Ben Iken, and recently Dave Donaghy. Welcome to the podcast, David Mead. G'day, David.
1: Hey, TK. Thanks for having me, mate.
0: Pleasure, mate. Like, why don't we start with the podcast? Because, mate, it's been pretty intriguing, especially, you know, I love NRL players. I love sportsmen. But, mate, the ones that have been intriguing me, lately, like Dave Donaghy, the CEO of the Brisbane Broncos. Benny Eichen, the head of football. But, mate, tell me how this all all started and how, how you got the, you know, like myself, got a little bit of a passion for the podcast game, mate.
1: Yeah, I think um, I've always thought about, you know, um, having my own podcast. I just didn't know if I was would ever be able to do one. And it was only recently, a couple of months ago, a newspaper from Png reached out to me and said, would you be willing to do a 250-word to uh, 300-word column on youth empowerment. And so I did that for a couple of months and uh, um, I was kind of running out of ideas how to tell the youth how they can empower themselves. And I thought I could really uh, do some help. And then I thought, I think interviewing other people, other players, uh, would be of real benefit to uh, that cause. And so... I asked for a bit of advice of a couple of uh, friends that I knew uh, in radio and stuff like that. So, And they just told me um, with practice, you will get good at speaking and being confident with what you have to say. And I'm not really at that point now. I'm still the one asking questions. Uh, but I'm finding that as I'm, the more and more episodes I'm doing, the more I feel confident in having my input as well as uh, asking the questions. And it's all, it's all fun. Um, as you know, uh, you know, it's something that is a constant uh, learning uh, experience for myself, um, but I am really enjoying it, uh, the whole process as well, and I'm still learning a lot. So that's kind of the idea behind the David Mead podcast.
0: Yeah, mate. I can definitely tell, especially with Ben and Dave's interviews, that you took yourself out of your comfort zone. Like I can, because the other guys were all rugby league players who were exactly the same as you. But we're literally talking about the two guys that run the club that you play for. So, mate, tell me a little bit about taking yourself a little bit out of that comfort zone.
1: Yeah, I think I've got, I've got a passion for you know doing ambassador work uh, as well for companies and stuff like that. And I kind of wanted to know how I could show value as an athlete to companies. Yeah. And I just thought if it'd be a pretty good idea to interview some guys who are running a pretty big organization, a sporting organization in Australia. If I can, if I can pick their brains a bit, uh, see what they've done to help them get to where they are. Um, take a few tips from them. And if I can apply some of that to the podcast or, you know, to my homework here in the little, little studio I got set up here. Uh, I like to enjoy, uh, I, I like to read books i do some writing and stuff like that. So I just thought if I can learn from two guys who run a footy club, um, I think it would really help me out. Yeah. And I guess recording it along the way, I've found that it's certainly helping other people as well. I've, uh, there's been some good response from uh, especially those two podcasts.
0: Yeah. Mate, i, I got a couple of little tips out there just for work and I thought it was amazing. That's the little things, hey? Eh? And that's the beauty of a podcast. You can then share it with a bigger audience. So it's not just like even me and you're recording right now, but there's going to be other people that get things from this and also in this conversation as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's the reason why I love listening to podcasts. Um, Not necessarily for entertainment. Uh, I do like to get my entertainment uh, from it, but it's mainly to get a few ideas and little tricks about how I can improve just small parts of my life. Uh, Not necessarily um, big things, but... I guess if you looking to, if you're kind of like me, looking to improve your life, um, why why are you washing the dishes or yeah. doing the laundry? You can Put the headphones on, listen to a few tricks, and uh, you know it, it certainly makes a big difference. Um, and so that's why I really enjoy listening to podcasts as well. And I thought um, starting one up, uh, maybe someone can learn a thing or two off me as well.
0: Yeah, mate. I'm with you. Like, the only reason why I like doing chores is people don't realize I'm listening to podcasts at the same time. So it doesn't feel like chores, man. And at the same time, I go through and I do my weights and my gym every single day. So I'm listening to a podcast while I'm training.
1: Mate, that, I'm exactly like that. Uh, I was at the gym today, listening to a podcast um, on podcasting, actually, how it can help me do a better podcast. Yep. Um, and at this, um, but yesterday I was at uh, one of my cousin's house, and he's a tradie. Okay. And, mate, uh, I, I love listening to the podcast. Um, me and all the workmates, we just put the earpo- earpods on. Uh, <laughs> we're on the job on the site, and, you know, we're doing the job really well, but it feels like the day's going really quick because we're getting some good podcasts in.
0: Yeah. Def- I feel it, mate. I feel it. All right, Dave, take me back because, mate, I love especially athletes from that are born in Papua New Guinea. Like I listen to the Marcus By one, listen to jo- Justin Olin one, and just their backgrounds and just the way their family are. It's a lot different to how we grew up in Australia. So, tell me a little bit about your upbringing. You were Port Moresby raised, but tell me a little bit about your family.
1: Yes, I'm from uh, Tubusera Village, which is half an hour from Port Moresby um i grew up in the village i lived there for 12 years uh my earliest memories are there um you know we lived in a four bedroom house uh we we were a family that did pretty well for for the standard of living that was uh there i wouldn't say we were uh rich by any means um the family struggled a lot but we were a lot better off than most other people uh four bedroom house couple of families living in each so it was always busy um Rice and uh, tin meat or fish for dinner was her main main foods. Okay. I remember I spent a lot of time with my grandparents because I was born uh, raised by a single mum. Yep. And when she went to work in town, um, I spent some time with my grandparents uh, going to their farm, which was a couple of kilometres outside the village, uh, subsist- subsistence farming. Yep. Uh, so typically, uh, you know, on a Monday to Friday, if I didn't go to school... Uh, I'd be on the back of a ute sitting with my grandparents, catching a ride to the farm and then walking a couple of hundred metres to get to the plantation site. And uh, a lot of that stuff was uh, you know, planting bananas, yep. uh, banana trees, yams, taros, um, You know, planting those so that you know, month's time uh, there'd be food available for the family and to be able to get that food and trade it with Others as well, so that you know you could get a bit of variety, yeah. Uh, uh, but you know, the school I went to uh, didn't always wear shoes to school, um, a lot of the kids still don't this day. It's it's a, a grade one to six class in the middle of the village, and you know, really hum- humbling experience, uh, upbringing uh, a little bit different to Justin and a couple of the other uh, guests that I've spoken to. Um, but that type of upbringing, I feel like, it uh, gives me some pretty good perspective for you know, living in Australia and uh, just trying to be grateful for things that I have. I'm, I'm not, all, I'm certainly not always like that, but it's a, it's a good reminder that I came up from a pretty uh, humbling upbringing. So you know, any days they get tough. Uh, thinking back to those days. Uh, certainly makes it a lot easier here.
0: Yeah, Dave, you know, Marcus Baye spoke about the strictness of his father and his whole family as a whole. Was that very similar to the way you were brought up?
1: Um, in a way, yeah. I think Marcus's uh, his story, it seems like they had a lot more um, uh, strict rules and discipline about mm. working and um, making sure that you do the job before uh, you play. Uh, Similar to Justin's, I guess um, our—I wouldn't say my family really did that, but they were big on discipline. Yeah, making sure that um, we had food, uh, making sure that the house was clean. That you do—you did the dishes, so all those things you're you're expected to do those as a kid growing up. You—you got to contribute and do your part, and that's as far as back as I can remember. Um, Normally, there's a you know couple of bowls. Um, you know, little bucket type of bowls where you're, there's two stations you're washing dishes, one's for the soapy water and the other one's for rinsing it clean. Um, a lot of I remember a lot of times after dinner I'm sitting there with my mum, uh, she's washing the dishes and I'm rinsing them off and someone else is drying them with a tea towel. So yeah. uh, that was a regular occurrence on a night and um, helping out with my grandparents, I guess, that kind of was my contribution but it was – Uh, fun as well. And I I really enjoyed that because, you know, going to the farm, a lot of the times I wasn't really planting all those things. I was just making fire and uh, cooking food and that type of stuff, having fun.
0: Nice. Now, tell me a little bit about school, school in the PNG. How how was a little David Mead when he first went?
1: Um, Mate, I was real nervous. I I remember grade one. I still remember my first day, actually. uh, Just going in, I had these uh, grey shorts on. Uh, button up blue shirt and uh, no shoes just walking in and (laughs) being all my classmates (laughs) Um, but it was just like a you know tin roof classroom with a concrete floor Uh, there's dirt on the floor and there's a couple of desks and chairs there for the kids Uh, I remember just learning the ABCs and here's the other thing we weren't at school you weren't allowed to speak in our local language which, which was Motu yep so in school, you you got a bit of a hiding if you spoke more to and didn't speak English. Okay. I don't know what it's like there now. I think the whole uh, students getting a hiding is thing of the past now. Yeah. I'm not that, but yeah, thinking back to those days, you had to speak yeah, English, and if you didn't, uh, you get in trouble.
0: Okay. Yeah. Dave, was it was it dangerous where you grew up at all, man?
1: I mean, it, it's not dangerous. Uh, you know, we're more... I think in Moresby, is a bit more dangerous than um, living in the village. Even in the village, everyone knows each other. It's community-based. Um, someone goes attack someone else's family, they know that family's coming back with... Yeah, gotcha. Uh, ...and times so more so. There, there's that big respect amongst the uh, people uh, in the village. Um, so dangerous. I'll, yeah, there were... Um, fights happen um, here and there, but those are mainly around um, alcohol.
0: Okay,
1: a lot of the times it's alcohol related. Um, the only thing that's really interesting to me right now, and I was just discussing with my auntie yesterday at the barbecue actually, was this thing called sorcery. Okay, it, it's still massive back there. The stories are huge. Whenever someone dies, um, there's always a uh, someone else is responsible for that death yeah gotcha and you know that could, i'm still trying to get my head around it Why that belief is still so strong back there so if we're talking about danger um that's probably the only thing that comes to my mind rather, uh, rather than um, you know normal everyday crimes yeah and how
0: long did you say you how long did your auntie say that had been around in terms of it like a well, would you call it even a tradition what or would you call that
1: uh, it's just a, a um, I wouldn't say a way of life. It's just something that happens all throughout Papua New Guinea. Yeah. Uh, apparently, it could be happy. It could happen with uh, another family being jealous with a, your family member going to the next village over, getting uh, approaching a sorcerer there, yeah, and telling them to keep an eye on this family, and uh, it could be from jealousy or something that that person's done, uh, and eventually, if a death occurs. Um, a lot of the finger pointing goes back to um, t- to the person who may have seen the uh, may have done the consulting, so to speak. Um, it, it is a, still, to me, it's a very weird, strange way of life, but it's when I go back there, I, tr- I question it, I try to uh, even mock it sometimes with my family, but when I'm sitting there talking to them, Mate, I get chills in my spines because of how believable it is wow And yeah I, I try to question everything but it, it's such an interesting part of life there that I'd like to explore a bit more yeah let's find out uh, what's really happening there
0: well it's the power of the conversation Dave like I had no idea what that even existed and until I met you tonight I would not have known so
1: yeah mate if you didn't ask me I probably never would have thought about sharing it i think i think at the barbecue yesterday with my auntie i was i was kind of like um trying to mock it a bit yeah but when she spoke about it because she's she lived there most of her life but she's she lives in the australian way now and when she goes back there she still has those chills when people are talking about um what's happening in the village
0: gotcha wow (laughs) So, Dave, you know, obviously, sports has become a huge part of your life. You become a professional sportsman since the, the age of seventeen. But in terms of rugby league, PNG's rugby league, pretty much the only country in the world where P- like rugby league is the national sport. But what what age were you when you first found out what rugby league was?
1: Mate, I would have been about four or five years old. I remember it was before school. My uncle uh, bought St George Dragons um, t shirts to. Yep. Uh, sit around and watch the uh, game of footy with them. And so Dragons was the team that I supported, and uh, most of my other cousin, because my uncle was uh, a uh, St. George Dragons fan. Yep. And ever since I, as far as I can remember, rugby league's the only spoken, of, uh, spoken about sport uh, in the village that I grew up in. And we're calling ourselves uh, Steve Ranoff, uh, Nathan Blacklock. Uh, a lot of the times you don't even, you haven't even, seen the game yep. you have just have other people talking them up <laughs> yeah. saying how fast they are <laughs> and so you're calling yourself uh the, those players and you know you get gathering a team of uh four against four empty plastic bottle if there's no footies around yep. and then you're trying to tackle and uh, back then we we're doing the spear tackles and stuff like that, so we we're trying to master <laughs> that at a very young age <laughs>
0: <laughs> brutal yeah, just brutal defense
1: yeah, mate, it's uh, it still happens back there in the digital cup. I think they're trying to cut it out, but yeah, it's uh, rugby league. It's it, it's it's nothing like I've ever seen, uh, you know, anywhere else. Um, you know, we see a lot of it here in Australia, but when you go, go to PNG, you notice the passion, um, how much the people love talking about it. Uh, it's just on a whole new level.
0: Yeah, mate. When you're playing like in the village, did you have a ball? Did you play with bottles? Like, how how did that work?
1: Uh, there's no organized uh, village comp. Yep. So most, uh, most days it's just after school, you're gathering your friends, let's go to the beach, uh, mark out some lines, put some sticks up on the cor- as a corner post. Yep. If uh, one of the boys has a footy, uh, then you can use a footy. If not, there's a uh, you're putting a little bit of water in a Coke bottle or something, or an cord- empty cordial bottle, and uh, you're kicking that to each other and running and tackling and passing it. Um, it's until you get to the age of about 16, 17, then you can play A grade, B grade or C grade in the village. Uh, there's four teams they are playing against each other in three different grades.
0: Wow. Okay, Dave, talk to me about moving to Australia because it was 12 when you moved over, correct?
1: Uh, yes, it was, yeah.
0: What was the reason behind that? And, yeah, just share me a little bit of insights into moving over.
1: Well, uh, my dad was Australian, uh, but I never knew him, so... Okay. When my auntie, um, my auntie was also married to an Australian and she was moving to Lismore because her eldest son was getting into uni there. And so they moved there and she thought um, they've always been a family that helped out um, the other siblings and uh, nephews and nieces. So they thought it would be right uh, to do the same thing for me and, and helping me get to Australia, give me a better education, a better shot at um possibly getting into uni and uh, being able to uh, you know look after myself when i when I grow up and you know do something for the community back there. I guess that was the reason why um my mum let me come over to live with my auntie back in Lismore um, down in Lismore there. And it was a it was a big transition. I uh, Going straight from the village, not even – I didn't really live in Moresby much. Yeah. And going straight from the village into Lismore was just like, wow, <laughs> this is – well, first thing I thought was when we landed, I'm like, oh, man, there's no potholes here. Yeah. It's actually a-
0: – <laughs> Where'd you land at Brisbane?
1: Brisbane Airport, yeah.
0: Yeah, okay. That would have freaked and, you out, mate, just seeing what Australia looked
1: like. Yeah. Well, when I was eight years old, I had done a trip for like uh, two weeks over Christmas break. Okay. So, so I had an idea. But when I moved here as a 12-year-old, I was like, wow, this, I actually can't believe I'm here and living in Australia. Uh, I miss fam- my family back home a lot. That took me about four or five years to get used to. Um, but when I first arrived, it was just a big culture shock. And I don't think I said much uh, in school for the first couple of years.
0: Wow, was well, you know? You just spoke about missing home, homesickness, especially for a young PNG boy. Did you ever think about packing it in and going home?
1: I wasn't really outspoken much because um, I um, yeah I was just shy and um, I think even if I thinking back, I, I definitely would have felt like going back home, yep. just missing my family. Um, but what my auntie and uncle did was um, you know they were they always good to take us back every year for four or six weeks for Christmas so that we can get some good time with the family there and then come back and um, do school and stuff like that. So I was very lucky in that sense. Um, but uh, I also got into cricket and rugby union the first year I was here, so that kind of helped me feel settled a lot more. Yeah. In Italy. And I think that probably made my stay here in Australia a lot easier, and more comfortable.
0: Yeah. Did you have any idea what cricket was before you started playing here?
1: Yeah, um, we're well in the off season, um, in the off season for rugby in the village. Yeah, they had a cricket comp. Okay, and so I, I never played in it, but it was always just fun playing with my um, cousins in the backyard. Um, and so when I was able to come to Lismore and actually join a team that used pads, um, <laughs> gloves, a proper bat, and a proper cricket ball, yeah. uh, that was a surreal experience as well.
0: Beautiful. Now, Dave, your surname, Mead, that is your aunt's surname. Was more your original name. Is that your biological dad's surname or your mum's maiden name?
1: Yeah, that is my biological dad's name. But um, because I never knew him, uh, I know who he is. But um, obviously, uh, I was brought up by my mum herself as a single mother. So uh, at the age of 18, I decided to change that name Uh, out of respect for my auntie who um, looked after me. And I thought, um, you know, that's the name that I want to carry uh, moving forward. Um, so that was uh, the reason behind that.
0: Yeah, that's a huge amount of respect, mate. How did you break it to your auntie that you were going to change your name?
1: Um, I, I can't remember the exact moment, but I remember I tried to just say it as uh, casual as I could because I'm, I'm the type of person that doesn't like to make a big deal out of yeah yeah um thing so i kind of just said um, oh, it was my uncle actually i spoke to first uh thinking back now and i just said um i'd like to change my name because you have uh looked after me and i don't remember the exact words but it was it was a really nice feeling at the time uh, when i had the conversation at lismore
0: that's super cool man super cool now mate moving on you know as a teenager you're playing cricket now union you're starting to fit in in lismore how did you kind of break out of your shell and kind of leave the quiet guy aside and then kind of this personality is a little bit coming out
1: it was always around like uh the saturday morning cricket uh games yeah um i had i had a group of friends from school that played in the same team so the banter started when uh, <laughs> my very first game i got a golden duck and i remember <laughs> i opened the batting <laughs> i remember opening the batting and then um I had a feeling that they were laughing, but it was as a, uh, as a team. And I, that feeling I remember from uh, getting from the village, from my um, you know, cousins and friends from the village. Yeah. So that kind of made me feel a bit more comfortable to open up. And it was over a couple of years that I started to feel like uh, I was fitting in here. Uh, I've got a really good bunch of mates who I played cricket with then, and I'm still good mates with them now. Uh, and they just made me feel really welcome. Uh, through, through sport. If, if I didn't play sport, uh, I think it would have been a lot harder for me to break out of my shell and, you know, um, be social with uh, others.
0: Yeah. Now, Dave, you, you signed with the Titans at 17, but you left for Australia at 12 and you hadn't played a competitive game of rugby league before. That five years, what happened in that five years to make you a professional, mate?
1: I played rugby union from the age of 13 to 17. Yep. And I think during those years, we had a. Um, every age group was under 13s, 15, 17s. Yep. So every second year, you're playing against guys who are one year older than you. And when you're 13, 14, that one year age group is huge. And you, you pretty much got no chance against playing, uh, winning against a team of 14 year olds when you're 13. Yeah, yeah. So I think having that competitive uh, age to play against consistently over a number of years certainly helped me develop faster because I always told myself I need to train harder, uh, I need to be better so that when the next year comes and and I'm 16 and they're 17, the space between um, or the difference in um, tackling and running isn't too big Uh, and I think that certainly helped but I, I did play a lot of uh, backyard um, cricket with my cousin, who was uh, who's my, who I call my brother now. He's, he was five years older, so he always um, be, he beat me in everything. He didn't let me win it. So I think he, I think that hunger um, developed a lot from there. And um, in terms of rugby league, um, I, I have a feeling that playing that age group up uh, certainly helped me develop a lot faster than yeah um, otherwise.
0: Dave, you're fast, you know, especially that 40-metre speed. you got a, you got blistering speed off the mark. Mate, what were you like? Did you do a little bit of athletics? And, you know, you did a lot of sport, but a little bit of athletics as well, mate? Uh,
1: no, not um, – just, just the school carnivals. Yep. They were the only athletics I did, so I never trained for any any of it. Um, but I did have a good chat with my mate, uh, Kevin Gordon, the other day.
0: Okay, yeah, I saw that you released it, yeah.
1: Yeah, about the 40-metre sprint. And we, we always had that 40-metre sprint of the Titans. Um, he's always beat me in it um, most years. I've, I've never actually openly said it until uh, the other day on the podcast. So, <laughs> yeah, it finally revealed that uh, Kevin Gordon had the quickest time of, over the 40 metres.
0: Mate, he could motor. He would have been quick over 100 too, wouldn't he?
1: Mate, he was, yeah. I think 40 was good, but I think after that he can still pick up speed after that. So he's, uh, he's definitely one of the fastest guys I've uh, played rugby league with. Um, uh, alongside uh, a guy called James Roberts, who's yeah. obviously at the Tigers right now. Uh, those two guys, I would put at the you know top three, four guys I've ever played with.
0: Yeah, for sure, mate. There would have been some some good off season sprint competitions for sure.
1: Yeah, you try to. Uh not stand right next to them, so hey, yeah, gotta <laughs> stand on the other side with this twenty <laughs> blokes in between us. <laughs> That's for
0: sure, but mate, you, at least you guys were young. Imagine Presto and Maddie Rogers running on old legs, mate.
1: Yeah, no, they were good fun to have around training actually, because they gave us Kevy and I a lot of banter about who's quicker and and who's not, and it made us both hungry to to want to be better than the other one.
0: Yeah. Mate, talk to me a little bit about signing with the Titans. Like, what was it? Was there any other offers? What was was always the dream to play for them?
1: Um, it was just out of uh, chance. I was at a Northern Rivers uh, rugby league trial. It was my first year of rugby league that I was playing in under-17s. And we are at Milan Bimby. Uh, there there's two trial games. Um, I was lucky enough to score a couple of tries there, and uh, uh, John Cartwright was there. Uh, watching the carnival and titans were new into the comp the following year yep Uh, so this is end of 2006 so uh, they were doing all their recruiting scouting around the northern rivers there and after the carnival had finished um cardi came up uh with a guy called tony durham and and they said um mate we'd love to we'd love for you to come trial with the titans one day Uh, how would you feel about that and i just i couldn't believe it i was like what the the NRL team. I, I didn't know who Cardi was at the time, um, to be honest. I didn't know he was the Titans head coach. And uh, Tony Durham from Lismore said to me, uh, mate, this is the coach of the Titans, uh, and he he wants you to have a contract. Uh, I didn't know what a contract or anything <laughs> was at the time. Yeah. But I did get a couple of polo shirts and uh, boots and stuff, no <laughs> money or anything, which I was pretty happy about. Uh, went home to Lismore that, that afternoon. Told my auntie, and she nearly dropped, she nearly cried. <laughs> um, and so that was kind of the beginning of the journey for the Titans. It was unplanned. Uh, I remember uh, I just had a couple of mates say, Go and uh, go and play and have fun. Um, just try and make the rep team. That's yeah. kind of where it came from.
0: Mate, you know, you're, you're still only 17. Like, what, it, when you sign that contract? Especially back then, like in Sydney where we live, you can play 16s and 18s and 20s and you have a job on the side. With the Titans sort of deal, how did that kind of fit in with your kind of your life and planning outside of that as well?
1: Not much really changed from then because I was at the end of grade 11 then, so grade 12. They spoke about possibly me moving to Palm Beach to okay. do my schooling there, but then I think Because I was one year older for my age there, I don't think I would have qualified to play in the Arrival Live. Okay. And they just said, okay, we'll do do your schooling um, in Lismore, get your uh, education, get your HSC, and when you finish that, the under-20s competition will kick in next year. So you'll be in the squad there. Um, You'll have your full preseason, and you'll get your development through there so... Not much. When I signed the contract, I was still going to school. Um, the only thing I did do extra was I'd asked the PE teacher if I could have the gym keys, which he uh, he was hesitant about giving it to me because of safety and stuff like that. But uh, as the year went on, uh, he felt more comfortable with giving me the gym key so I could just go do my workout. But he just said, don't tell anyone about this. who uh, will get in a lot of trouble Yeah, if you drop weights on yourself. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, oh Johnny O'Brien from Trinity, uh, Lismore. They certainly looked after me, so uh, a lot of gratitude to him as well.
0: Yeah, mate. When you first signed that deal, like, what were you like coming through? As well, did you always have that discipline, or was it something that you learn along the journey?
1: Um, I was always someone who did uh, extras. I, I loved going to the field because, as I said, playing as a fourteen-year-old playing against fifteen-year-old. 15-year-olds, 16-year-old um, playing against 17-year-olds. That made me want to get better. And so I always, I don't know, if I'd, I never would have done my training the right way. I just wanted to get out on the field because that's where I found my happiness when I was improving on the footy field, even if I was, a lot of the times I was on my own doing my own training. Yep. Uh, laps and stuff like that, uh, doing push-ups. So I was always the type of person to do extra training it's just when I actually came in to do the preseason, it was a whole new level uh, of work that I was used to. Um, the hardest thing is things I've ever done, but I think the discipline and hunger were kind of already there for me at the start. It was it was just refined a bit more uh, by the coaching coaching staff and the uh, the players that I met.
0: Yeah. Now, Dave, first grade debut, St George Royal Dragons. Your team as a child. Did you believe, like, because you came off the bench that day, but talk to me about just even preparing for this game against the team that you supported as a child, mate.
1: Mate, that was unreal. I, uh, I remember sitting on the bench and Wendell Saylor was the opposite, opposite the winger that I was going to go on for today. So I remember just sitting on the bench, just sweating. <laughs> oh, man. Get me on the field so we can get this over and done with. <laughs> But um, I went on and I remember Wendell, he kept looking at me trying to get my um, eye contact. Yeah. But I was just trying to look into the middle of the field to see where the ball was the whole time. I didn't want to look at him once because I just knew if I did, he'd get in my head. So he just kept saying things. I, I didn't pick up what he was saying, but it was just uh way to intimidate me. <laughs> um, the game ended up, uh, I think we ended up winning that game, so... Um, I was pretty happy that we played against the Dragons, the team that I loved. Um, but my uncle, who supported me, uh, rang me up that night, and I was able to have a good conversation with him. But uh, you know, he was proud. He was proud of that moment because he knew uh, Dragons was the team that I went for, and to be able to play against them, uh, it was a mixed emotions for him. But uh, he's very happy.
0: Yeah, back home in Papua New Guinea, with your uncle you spoke about and the rest of your family, did they all? How could they watch the game back then?
1: Yeah, they, they watch uh, most Friday night games and the Sunday afternoon games with yep. Channel 9. They, those were the games they were able to watch. And, you know, whenever they tune in, they, they, they're full support. They tell me um, every time I, I play or score a try, the the noise in the village, it's just <laughs> you know, people with pots and pans, roofs. Uh, the noise just travels across. I'd love to be able to, you know, if, if someone recorded it or something, just so I could get a feel for what it's like, but they said every time um, every time I was on the field, that, that's the type of noise that was happening across the village, uh, which is pretty cool.
0: Yeah, I think the other thing that's cool is the impact you're having on other people's lives. Like, there's little kids that are watching you wanting to be the next David Mead and do the same thing, better their lives and, you know, achieve all their dreams as well, man.
1: Well, it's something, uh, I met Marcus Bayer in the 2008 World Cup, mm. and he's someone who's you know, I've spoken to him on the phone throughout the years uh, since that day I met him, and he's just guided me with advice and um, telling me to be comfortable with the way I play and, and with and who I am. So he's someone I certainly looked up to, who inspired me, and I think he's laid a pretty good example for me to follow uh, to be able to, you know, pass that that type of legacy on to the next generation because. I think if you're if you're one person doing that to you know few kids and that can have a ripple effect on you know the rest of the community. So I think uh, it's certainly a great thing to do.
0: Yeah, especially Marcus By like for me, I grew up in the era that he played in. I think now with all the kids coming through and it being the game being even bigger and bigger, people don't realize how good Marcus By was. Like for people listening and are young tonight, Marcus By was the equivalent of Mike, Mike Acevo back in the day, probably even better.
1: Mate, he was, he, was, he, was a, he was an icon uh, when I was growing up. He still is now. Mm. Uh, you know, everyone knows him. Everyone remembers him. And I think oh, as I was interviewing him, I did a bit of homework on him. I think he's one of the only players to win, you know, the trophies, the big trophies in Super League and NRL.
0: Yeah.
1: I think the only one he's missed out on is the Challenge Cup. Um, but he's won every other trophy with, you know, several different teams. So, He's a, he's a big name in PNG, but I find that he's also very well-respected amongst the you know Melbourne playing group. Well, whoever I've spoken to from Melbourne uh, hold him in a very high regard. So, uh, yeah, he's certainly very well-respected.
0: Definitely. Now, Dave, I've got a few videos, a few photos to show tonight. This one here was quite interesting. I'll take you through a bit of a story after this one as well. So this one here is obviously one of the... The
1: chase is on for seen a try like that it's David football. Mead, you aren't a football you're player, you're some it's
0: sort of it. magician Now Dave, I'm a big Sharks fan so I was absolutely just giving it to you that <laughs> night but my best mate Grant, he was actually the touch judge on that game and he, he obviously referees you now in first grade but me and him talked about that game all week I still can't believe you pulled that off but give me your memories around that try
1: mate. All I remember was putting my hand up for Princey to put a kick, the the normal kicks that he does, and I remember the ball just going past, and I just thought, oh, "Stick your hand out, you've missed it." <laughs> and It's something I stuck, and I put I put it down. And look, and I've just looked around just to see if the flag went up. Yeah, and when I didn't see the flag go, I thought, "Oh, this could be a try here." But when the when I saw it on uh, replay later that night, um. The camera angle made it look ten times better than what it felt. Like. <laughs> so all I thought was just catch and put down, but I think where the camera is there and where the ball is coming down, I think it makes it look ten times better than what it actually is.
0: Yeah, I think it's the angle of Shark Park and the the lights are low and all sorts of things. But mate, it's a classic that's going to be played forever and ever, mate.
1: Yeah, certainly. Uh, I certainly never practiced that type of uh, catch in USA. <laughs> Plenty of plenty of luck there.
0: Did what well, the boy? Did the boys give it to you for for years? Like what was kind of like the talk within the team?
1: Yeah, they just always just like ah the try. Yeah, he's getting arrogant because he uh, yeah score the one hand pick up try. You know, just just a bit of banter around the shit stuff like that. <laughs> they always tell me that I'm um, I'm looking it up on YouTube, telling everyone
0: <laughs> all the views uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> for more views. But um, Princey actually after the game he goes mate. If, if you didn't score that trial, I would have sprayed you. Because if you look at the actual video, I'm about five meters behind the behind from where he kicks it, so I missed the boat. Uh, <laughs> if I was in line with him, it would have just been an easy catch and put down. So, I think um, yeah, Prince, Prince he, uh certainly uh, helped me score some tries in my career at the, at the Titans there.
0: Okay, mate, I'm going to take you through a couple of tries and we're going to talk about your knack of finding the try line, mate.
1: Oh, Meade over he's away. I don't think I'll catch him. He's over the 30. McGuire chases. Fade coming from this side, but they won't get it. Oh, look at Maguire's still
0: winning. But Mead's going to score a lead for the field try. Topkin sticks it in. Oh, it's snapped up by Mead. And Mead has got paid. She'll hear him back to catch him. Back comes Gildard too. But Meade will go all
1: the way under
0: the post. Mate, you're lucky Josh McGuire didn't catch you on that first one. But, mate, you <laughs> you got plenty of toe and you're always fine on the trial. You've got a great strike record, mate. Was uh, What was it? Like, did you practice this? Was there something behind the scenes going on?
1: Um, no, not really. You kind of just yeah, – these are the things you go to sleep dreaming about doing, so – to be able to go out and, you know, pull off the one every uh, every 10 games or so or however many, uh, it's nice, especially those long-range ones. They're, they're a bit more exciting. But uh, I think if Josh Maguire caught me in that uh, <laughs> earlier one... Um, you would have probably- to retire,
0: like- mate. <laughs> <laughs> um, Matey, take me through because early on in your career... The Titans were semi-finalists in your first season. You actually played two two games of semi-final football, but then you had a little bit of a break until 2016 for the Titans to make it to the finals again. I think that was the the year that Jared came over. But kind of how was it frustrating between that, that period, especially being a young bloke achieving so much early and then having to wait again for another crack?
1: Yeah, mate. It was it was frustrating. I um, I remember that. 2009 year, we came third, I believe, and, you know, we played in a, two semi finals and lost both, um, but because it was early days, and before that, I was used to um, playing in grand finals, winning them, like, under 18s, 19s, and in 20s, we played semis as well, so I wouldn't say I took it for granted, but I always thought, oh, this next year, Yeah. and the next year came around, I got injured and missed out on that. Um, but to have that long space between semifinals, it just, yeah, it was every year you're, you're missing out on the eight, you're 10th uh, to twelve, thirteen. 13th. Um, I think we've got the wooden spoon once as well, and it's very frustrating because um, it feels like you've got a whole another preseason to go, and then nothing's guaranteed for the rest of the year. But I guess in my first year, what I have learned now or in the last couple of years, is that we had a solid group of guys who drove the high standards. Yep. Uh, we had older guys like Matty Rogers, Preston Campbell, Scotty Prince, Luke Bailey. We had that luxury of guys who just who didn't tolerate anything less than you know the high standards. And I've learned that as as the years have gone on, that's what you have to drive as a player, and that's why you get uh, well, that's why you need to get to, together as a group. And because the coaching staff they can only do so much, uh, you as a playing group have to get together and say this is what we're going to uh, tolerate, and nothing nothing less.
0: Yeah,
1: I've learned that that was the difference between those couple, early uh, few years um, and the years that we missed out on.
0: Yeah, Dave, you know you as a veteran now at the Broncos, very young team as well. You know, from the outside looking in, it looked like Kevin Walters did. Recruit you for a reason to add experience, leadership, and all that sort of stuff. You know, you talked about the lessons the veterans taught you. Talk to me about your role now with the Broncos and how you approach the rookies.
1: Well, it's I'm the type of person who uh, um, has like one-on-one conversations on the side with uh, you know young guys. Um, I'm not necessarily a big talker in in big groups, so my leadership role uh, style is having a chat with with a couple of the young guys before training starts and just say, everything all good, uh, you happy. And no, they prep pretty well these days. They're pretty well, you know, they're, they're probably the best athletes I've ever played with Yeah. in terms of their times with, uh, you know, testing, strength, endurance. They've got it all. It's just the, the footy side, they're still learning. And I'm here to help them uh, learn a bit about that footy side that I, I was able to learn off the experienced guys and. That's kind of my role as um, as, as simplified as, as as I can say it. Um, not necessarily to be here saying, oh, you need to do this, you need to do that. It's just this is the difference. If we do this this way, uh, we can we can win the games. Nice. Uh, if we do it this way, then obviously we won't get results.
0: Dave, next thing I want to talk to you about is representing Papua New Guinea because it would have been an incredible honour to not only get selected but go to three World Cups and then also lead your country, but mate, in terms of being a leader, talk to me about, because I guess what I was really intrigued about was leading a a country, how much different that is to being a leader when you're representing just your club side.
1: Yeah, it was, I guess Mike's he put me as a leader because I was one of the few NRL players um, playing in the uh, Kool side. It, it came as a bit of a shock to me, so I didn't know how to take that like uh, that week on. Um, so when when he first gave me the leadership, I kind of I, uh, I asked Wayne. I said, "Mate, um, have you got any advice for me?" And uh, he said, "Mate, uh, all you have to do is be yourself. You don't need to change anything. Um, you're the link between the players and the." and the coach, um, but I don't think that you have to go out and you know, give any big pump-up speeches or anything like that. You just do your job on the field and the rest will take care of itself. And you know, That was advice that really helped. And I've never went away from that because I, f- I felt that if if I thought about all the other things that a captain should do, that probably would have added unnecessary stress or pressure to me, not just playing on the field, but op- um, what I had to be like off the field as well.
0: Yeah. Mate, it's an incredible growing game, especially in Papua New Guinea. Like I was thinking today, like the guys that are currently in NRL, you know, you've had a, a few few of them on your podcast, you know, Alex Johnson, Xavier Coates, yourself, Nana McDonald, Justin Olam, Lockie Lamb. Like there is some really, really good Papua New Guinea players coming through. So let's hope this World Cup goes through. I think you guys are going to be very, very competitive.
1: Yeah, we've got a good squad. I think just, um, you know, having everyone with the NRL club certainly helps yep. because they get the uh, you know, they get the everyday grind of what an NRL player should be like and to be able to bring that type of experience into the Kumul's camp and just show the other guys how how everyone prepares for, you know, these games, it certainly helps the team because we uh, not everyone is playing at that NRL level, so you know, we need as much NRL experience as we can in that short amount of time to to prepare for you know, an occasion like the World Cup.
0: For sure, mate. I found a great picture of uh, yourself and I think your first son. Sorry, I'm just trying to put this on for you. Your wife and your –
1: is that your first son, is it?
0: Um, can you see that one?
1: I can't see the photo, no.
0: Ah, let me just – can you see it now?
1: No, but I think I know which one it is. Hold on one
0: second. I'll put it on again. Maybe sorry, this screen share. Let's have a little crack. Can you see it now?
1: Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, perfect. Is that your first one? So that's my that's my second game um, as a captain. Yep. But it was our first game against Wales in PNG uh, in Port Moresby. That, That was a nice moment that I remember. You know, standing in the on the field and singing the national anthem, seeing my whole family. Um, no family from the village who I grew up with, family from Australia who took me there, and you know, seeing everyone there in the stands, and uh, you know it brought a tear to my eye just before uh, kicking off. It's kind of all the effort that they had put in into helping me uh, reach my goals and my dreams. Um, everyone was there to witness that moment and experience that moment with me, uh, as well as having my son there and, and wife there. So it's uh, certainly a day I'll. I'll cherish for the rest of my life. Definitely. It's probably one of my days, yeah, ever.
0: Fantastic photo, Matt. A couple more topics before we wrap things up here, Dave. Now, the first one, I actually got to speak with Steve McNamara last year, and I thought he was an incredible human being, but talk to me about going over to Catlins and challenging yourself in the Super League.
1: Yeah, well, I spoke to Mac after that World Cup, uh, actually about a couple of weeks after that photo was taken, and Mac, he... He just said, "Mate, we'd love to have you here. Uh, your experience. Uh, we need a full-back outside back, here." And you know, when I got there, Mac was—he was really good to me. He made me feel uh, at home over there. He's—he's he's worked in the NRL before, so he understands um, NRL players' needs and wants. And and you know, he's a family man himself, and you know, he wanted to make sure that club uh, operated uh, at that wavelength. And obviously, going to France was. No easy task because there's a language barrier there. And, you know, Max, he's doing a great job over there because he speaks, has to stop, and then the assistant coach who speaks a bit of English and French, he translates the message. And, you know, I think for a coach to be able to do that uh, in a team that's, you know, it's very rare uh, experience. I guess it's the only team in rugby league that has to do that, where a coach speaks, has to stop, and then, someone translate. But, you know, my time in, in France, I certainly enjoyed it. I always wanted to go to Europe to uh, to experience a bit of a lifestyle there. Yep. Um, but to be able to do that with with work and, you know, playing sport and to see how how what, what, how that their crowds behave in the crowd, um, they're certainly very entertaining, very proud people. Uh, it, was, it was an experience I really loved because, you know, every time you're running onto the field, they're just chanting the whole game. And that was probably my favourite part about playing over there.
0: Yeah. Did you live by the beach and stuff over there, man?
1: Uh, We were about half an hour from the beach. Uh, Where the team's located, there's a a beach there. But uh, we took the deep dive and uh, moved into one of the French villages and wanted to experience life there. And and, uh, it it was certainly an awesome experience. uh, um, I'm glad I ticked that box. Uh, It was was a three-year experience, uh, but I'm we, we, did, we did miss our family as well, so uh, that was the main reason why we came back.
0: Yeah, now I've got the last video I want to show for you tonight, mates. Right?
1: Well, this glorious day when memories are made and possibly history made today.
0: Could Catalan take the Challenge Cup away from England for the first time? In its 117-year-old story, Will Warrington, wear down, resist the French Romance. And... Now, Dave, I was saying to, to Steve, the, I love that, man. And it's kind of like very soccer-like, you know, FA Cup, Champions League. They all do that sort of style. And there's always debate on how the NRL Grand Final should start. That's how I think the NRL Grand Final should start. How was that experience for you, walking out at Wembley?
1: Mate, that is, that is one of the best. Uh, experiences you have as a rugby league player or even anyone involved with the team as a staff member. I didn't realise how big it was until the week of the grand final. Um, you know, everyone was talking about it. I, I kind of had a feeling that, oh, yeah, this is pretty cool, but, you know, I want that premiership at the end of the year. Yeah. But when it got to the week and the amount of buzz, it's not just um, the rugby league community in England that talks about it, it's the whole country. They talk about uh, the Challenge Cup because every team has a chance of winning it, not just the Super League teams. And you know, to be able to experience that week in England um, as a French team uh, to come over here, and you know, the amount of support that we got, um, you know, even from the French president as well, to go and uh, play in that week uh, is one of the best weeks ever. And I think you know, if the NRL was to bring in something like that uh, into the game. I think uh, you get a lot more teams involved. You get a lot more people uh, interested in watching the games uh, because, you know, you got... I'm going to give a shout-out to my Morris Brothers team in Lismore here. They'd have a, they'd have a crack at, you know, winning that trophy and, uh, you know, every team would be, you know, wanting to progress as far as they could to, you know, play against the Queensland Cup or NRL teams. So it's certainly a great uh, concept and, uh, you know, I love watching it every year when it comes around.
0: But it's just so special, mate. Like, for example, you've you played in one Challenge Cup final and you've got that memory of walking out in front of Wembley. Like, that's the thing, like, when you speak about players that played in Australia, like, their memory is just running out. Like, you have a special memory of walking out with – and I love how Steve and the owner, like, walks you out as well because it makes them – because they're such a huge part of the team. Like –
1: Yeah. I I love the way uh, the Super League does their – interests uh, onto the field especially um, you know games like that it's um, I don't know how to put it into words but when you're there when you're standing there in the tunnel you know walking out and you know your coach is there leading you out it's a real special moment and you know to be able to do that at Wembley uh, you know one of the best stadiums that I've ever played at and to be able to experience that it's uh, it's certainly memories that I hold for the rest of my life and You know, I got chills just uh, from you bringing that video up. So yeah, uh, it it, I remember it like yesterday.
0: Nice one. All right, now a few questions. Now in the next couple of weeks, it's Men International Day or something like that. We've been recording these videos at work, and they've just been asking us various questions, just things we generally wouldn't speak about. So I've got a few questions. So the first one, the question we got, I got asked was, what are three things that men can do to stay mentally healthy? Have you got any thoughts around that?
1: Um, my first one is, yeah, exercise or um, the quickest way I feel like you can get yourself out of a little, um, how would you describe it, a little, little rut or hole in that, in that moment in time. Uh, not everyone has one, but if you jump in the ice bath yeah. and freeze yourself for like five, ten minutes, you're not thinking about anything but when you're getting out of that water
0: okay,
1: and when you get out of that water, you're, you're feeling fresh, your body, your physiology has changed. Um, but you know, that's my quickest way. If I'm feeling like, um, a bit foggy or tired or, you know, pissed off, I'm just like, I, I won't have access to ice bath, but even a cold shower will do. Um, that's my kind of little morning routine that helps me get a good start for the day. Uh, another one is exercise. Yep. Um, I find that if I'm slouching on the couch and you know, my posture's bad, my back's sore, it's, it's a lot easier for me to get irritated and get into a negative state of mind, yep. which can obviously then lead to doubt, hesitating, you know, all these negative types of emotions. And um, you know, I, try, I try to avoid the couch as much as I can and I try to exercise. So they're probably two of the um, quickest answers. Uh, the third one is obviously talking to someone. Yep. I know we've heard a lot about this uh, in, in recent years, but I can't emphasize in, enough how important speaking to someone about you know, how you truly feel, especially someone you trust. And just, even if they've got no solution for it, just the, just the, um, just the way you express it and deliver it to, um, to get it off your chest it's uh i can't give that um that pro that process uh enough credit because uh, it certainly helps me
0: definitely that's some good ones now mate the next question and i'll give you my three so then you can have a quick think about it as well what are what are the three masculine traits that you most admire now the three that i gave was leadership a growth mindset and empathy
1: I think uh, what you said—the empathy—I was going to say um, compassion, but I think they kind of go hand in hand. I think yeah. you're trying to put yourself in the other person's shoes. I think that's one thing I'm learning as I'm, you know, doing this podcasting thing, trying to listen intensely to what the other person is really trying to say. Yeah, I think that's a really good uh, trait to have as a as a you know as a masculinity trait. Um, Two other ones. I feel like um, being a good example for uh, if you got kids or people around you. I think being a good example, yep. um, whether it's you know getting ready for work on time. Uh, you know, I, I find this one. Um, this is just this, this just a practical example. Um, normally, I've I grew up in a culture where you know the women are doing the dishes and. Yeah. Um, cleaning and stuff like that. Men go out and do the hunting. I find, you know, getting up doing the dishes, t- taking the lead from there. Um, you, even if you've gone over to someone's house for a barbecue, picking up the rubbish in the backyard, picking up the, you know, the drink cans or you know beer bottles and stuff, cleaning up the house before you leave. I reckon that's one of the best traits. When, when guys do that, man, I, I feel like um, they're a real leader in my eyes because you know it inspires me to do it. Um, so it's something that I try to um, do. Uh, I don't always do it, especially at my family's house because I get it a lot easier there.
0: <laughs> but it's very humbling, but, mate. It's very humbling.
1: Mate, it is. I think well, when I see my teammates, the the simple like, of picking up something of rubbish that's on the floor that wasn't theirs, yeah. putting it in the bin, that's, a, that's an insp- insp- inspiring moment. And if, if guys can do that, going over to, to their friend's house for a barbecue or anything like that, uh, you're, you're a true leader.
0: Mm, I like that one, mate. like that a lot. Now, Dave, we'll finish on a light-hearted note. It's just my dinner party question. Now, I ask all my guests this. It's, you've got five invites to a private dinner party, David Mead. Now, only rules, no family or friends, but you can invite anyone, dead or alive. Who would you like to invite to dinner?
1: Five people. Um, I think, <laughs> I'm trying to think outside of sporting or because that, they're my I can fill that five the table of five very easily.
0: Who would have been um, You know what? I had Darius Board on Friday, and his one was all sportsmen—just boom, 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 boom. Yeah, yeah.
1: That's that's an easy one. It's, it's all sport. But if if I was to test myself, anyone outside of that, um, it'd be the Dalai Lama. Yeah. Um, I have to put a few sports people because I'll struggle to fill the rest. <laughs> uh, Michael Jordan. Yeah. Um. Will Smith, mm-hmm. um, couple other people, Roger Federer, yep, and I think uh, Donald Trump.
0: There you go. What's with yeah. what's with Donald? You just intrigued.
1: Uh, I want to see if he actually talks that because uh, his communication—he talks real simple. Yeah, um, you understand everything he says. I just wonder if he speaks like that. Behind the uh, closed door, yeah, yeah. It's uh, he's an interesting character.
0: <laughs> he is what, yeah, yeah, and
1: uh, yeah. yeah. I was just watching him on the news, how the news tries to portray him, and then I see his tweets. I'm I just looking at him, and go, well, I can't see them now because obviously he's banned, but he's someone who's uh, very interesting, and uh, I draw some form of inspiration from him because he just. It's not that he doesn't care about other people's – what other people are saying, but he, he gets things done.
0: Yeah, he does it his own way as well. So you've got to take yeah. a little bit of credit from there. But, David, it's been an amazing chat. Before I let you leave, everyone gets listening first to the David Mead podcast. You'll find that on Spotify, Apple, pretty much anywhere. YouTube, he's got the videos up there as well. Twitter and Instagram, Mead 411 But, David Mead, it's been an absolute pleasure, man. Thanks for sharing all the stories and a few words of wisdom there too, my man.
1: TK, thanks for having me, mate. I think uh, the great questions you had for me. I certainly brought up a lot of great memories from uh, growing up, so uh, I'll have to learn to tell those in a uh, much more effective and uh, uh, a better way. But, you know, thanks. It's it's been great being on here.
0: Absolute pleasure, mate. Enjoy the off-season. I'm pretty sure that you're only a couple of weeks away from getting absolutely slaughtered by your trainers up there in the Broncos. But all the best for the next season as well, mate, and hopefully we can do this again sometime, bud.
1: Awesome. Thanks, TK.